0: Yep. Okay. All right, welcome. Um, (laughs) We've been going through the book of Acts. This is kind of our first book study. Um, So, so far it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Bill was going to preach to us today, but we had some timing things. He was gone on vacation all last week and got here this week and uh, realized he was going to be playing catch up at work all week. And so uh, we decided that he's going to, he is going to come talk to us. He's going to, he's going to. Bring us a lesson, but we're going to schedule that a ways out yet. Some of me, which is going to be amazing. So, no. Um, so, Book of Acts, we started, um, you know, a couple months after Jesus um, was crucified. He starts off by going kind of inauguration process where he he uh, ascends to to the heavens and he sends out his followers kind of as heralds to announce the new king. Um, and he kind of follows a pattern that had been done. We talked about that. And he sends out um, the apostles as his witnesses. And he gives us kind of an outline for the book. He says, you're going to do it in Jerusalem. You're going to move on to Judea and you're going to go to the outskirts uh, of the earth. And so this book is just kind of working the outline. Right now we're still in Jerusalem and uh, we're following the apostles. Uh, he tells them first, though, that they need to wait. You just kind of hold tight and wait for the Holy Spirit. We have this big explosive Pentecost moment when the Holy Spirit falls and, and, uh, and kind of baptizes the church. And they come out, Peter preaches this big amazing sermon and 3,000 people get saved, which is, uh, which is amazing. Most of them from out of town. They were all in town for this, uh, uh, first fruits festival. And so they all kind of hear about Jesus and then scatter back to the kingdom. Um, and then we pick up a couple weeks later where uh, Peter and John are going to temple and they see a beggar outside the temple uh, which is apparently there all the time and Peter looks at this beggar and sees something in him and heals him and it causes quite a stir he winds up with people kind of gathered all around him and uh, he preaches another sermon and this time 5,000 people get saved so two sermons 8,000 people it's going well so far um, only this time it kind of stirs the leadership, the power structure of the day the Sanhedrin finds out about it and they call him in and kind of put him under trial. And remember, this, these are the guys that just like two months ago started Jesus' trial, the same batch of guys, and now the apostles are standing before him and the Sanhedrin threatens them: No more talking about Jesus. And they respond with this kind of boldness. We, all we can do is tell what we've seen. And they recognized the boldness and knew that these people had been with Jesus. So, in the face of this threat, the apostles uh, run back to the church. We kind of get a, an outline of where their boldness comes from. It says that they uh, ran back to their people and told them what was going on. And as one, they all went to God and prayed for boldness to speak. And then they went forth doing good, healing and changing the world. Um... The other cool thing that's kind of been happening is as we've been telling this story, we've been drawn back to older stories. We've kind of seen um, a parallel story taking place in the birth of Israel. Uh, I think you can put up the next slide. Or maybe two. One more. There we Where are we going? The other way. One more. There we go. Nope, one more. There it is. All right. I knew we'd get there. We've... Uh, we had the cross, which happened on Passover. The Last Supper happened as a Passover meal. And then 40 days later, 50 days later, the, the children of Israel, they leave Egypt. 50 days later, they find themselves at Mount Sinai. And fire falls on the mountain, and there's rushing wind, and there's noise. And God comes and gives the Ten Commandments. It's this big kind of dynamic God shows up 50 days after Passover. Well, in our story, 50 days after Jesus' death on Passover... The Holy Spirit shows up in this upper room and He comes again in fire and noise, and it's kind of a neat parallel that happens. And then immediately from there, they go, um, we have this story in the Old Testament about the spies that go into the land and they're confronted with this threat again. Only in the Old Testament, they don't respond in boldness. Ten of them say, No, those people are too big for us, and they decide, to stay in the wilderness for 40 years before they go in. In our story, they're confronted again with a threat of a stronger power, and this time they respond in boldness. And today we actually see another parallel, which is um, kind of fun, and, and what's really fascinating is the language that it happens in. And so we're going to go over this. Uh, go ahead. Um, it says, this is this is in the original passage, the children of Israel did so... Uh, okay, so what happens is when they get out in the wilderness, they realize... But they've got no food. They've got no water. They've got no provisions whatsoever. And this is kind of a huge story in the Jewish narrative. This is this is burned in the heart of every Israelite. This is part of their story. They actually tell this story a lot in, some, in a lot of their rituals. Um, and God sent manna from heaven. It was on the earth every morning when they woke up. And it says, Then the children of Israel did so, and they gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little... Had no lack, every man had gathered according to each one's need. Now watch this language in Acts when, when uh, Luke tells us what's going on today. He says, "Nor was there any among them who had lack for all their, all, who had, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of those things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed them as each one had need. So Luke's choosing to use, probably prompted by the Holy Spirit, to use this language that was used before about lack and need, that no one had any lack. Everyone had what they needed. This is the language that was used in Exodus when they talked about the Israelites in the wilderness. This is the Exodus Luke uses. And a quick note, this is not like magic. This, these aren't like hidden secret codes. that that's, There's a there's a heresy called Gnosticism where you hunt for like these secret codes that only, you know, God only reveals to the super smart. This isn't Gnosticism. This is, this is literature. The writers did this all the time where they would use images that they knew would spark something they were trying to get across. They knew that... that When Jesus stayed in the wilderness for 40 days, that's a powerful number to a Jew. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. So Jesus, this wasn't like a magical, Jesus knew if I stay 41 days, my body can not, like we try to explain some of this scientifically. If you fast for 41 days, your body can no longer uh, reverse the fast and you die. I've actually heard somebody preach that before. And I don't think that's why he chose 40 days. I think he chose 40 days because he was telling a story about another story. He was purposely drawing our attention to something else. And, and, and this happens all the time. These writers intentionally chose images of the past to draw us there, to pull us to that place and say, what was going on there that this author is trying to pull us to? And so this has been happening through the book of Acts constantly. Luke's constantly been pulling us back to the birth of Israel as he's describing the birth of the church. And so it leaves us with this question of why is why is Luke here pulling us back? What is he trying to tell us? And and this kind of uncovers our tension point for today. We've been doing this along the way. And I don't know if we'll have a tension point every week, but so far we have. And our first tension point, go ahead with the next slide. Our first tension point is that Christianity is a belief system. Okay, there are things that we assent to, things that we believe. It, it is about changing our thinking. It is about seeing things the way God sees things. God is, there are things... From the earliest days, Christianity had creeds. I believe this. I believe that. And our our statement of faith, this church is built on one of the most ancient creeds, the Nicene Creed. We it is about what we believe. It is a belief system, but it's also more than that. It's also a social movement. Go ahead with the next slide. Christianity is also about this movement of good in the world. It's about a group of people who set about doing good in the world. And it's always been this. From the, from the early, like twice now, in chapter 2, after Peter's first sermon, a bunch of people get saved. And the very first thing Luke says is "And all the people were in one accord and they shared their things and they lived, they lived in, uh, in one accord with one another. And then he preaches this second sermon, 5,000 people get saved. And Luke goes right back to it again. He says, and what happened was nobody had any need. There was no lack. It was this social movement and it's always been like this. If you, go through, if you go through church history, you see orphanages, you see hospitals, you see schools, you see the, and the church starting all of these things. You see the church behind every movement to free slaves, to advance women, to make life better for workers. It's always the church that's driving these things. Now you've got the church is in Africa fighting the AIDS epidemic and digging wells to find clean water. And that's always the church doing it. The church is a social movement for good. And the problem is we tend to split. We tend to have one group of people that likes to focus heavily on the belief system. And, and, and we kind of settle in there. We say, you know, really what's, what matters is the heart. It does no good to go over there and give people stuff if we don't change their heart, if we don't, if we don't give them the gospel. True. And then you got James over here saying, if, if all you do is, is give them a blessing and, and give them the word and you don't meet their needs, then what good is that? And, and the problem is we like to split. We like to split to opposite sides of the aisle, pardon my metaphor. We like, to, we like to split sides and say, no, it's all about belief. No, it's all about what we do. And the reality is we have to sit in that tension. We can't let go of either one of those. We have to stay in that tension of yes, it's a belief system. Yes, it matters what we believe. Yes, we are supposed to assent to these things and, and put our faith in them. But it also matters what difference we make in the world. The church from day one was a social movement. It was a it was a movement of change. And we have to hang on to both of those. We can't we can't pick a side on this one. We can't say this side's more important than that side and this matters more than that. We have to just hold the tension between that. Go ahead. So, you know how this goes. Is Christianity a belief system or a social movement? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Tonight we're going to dig into the social movement side of this a little bit. Because really this is the story This is the story Luke's telling here. The book of Acts is, is not a theology book, really. We find some theology here, we pull some theology out, but this isn't Romans. This isn't a systematic approach to our faith. He's telling a story of what the church did. When they, were, when they were confronted with the resurrection of Jesus, what did it inspire them to do? That's what Luke is telling us here. That's the story that's being told, is what did the church do with this new thing? And really what they did, what we find out, it was, it was a social movement. It was a movement, i change. we've talked about it several times in here, what inspired the historians of the day, when they looked at Christianity and said, why is Christianity advancing so much? One of the top three reasons was because they took care of the poor. They took care of everybody's poor. They took care of the Christian poor and the Roman poor and the Jewish poor. They didn't care who who it was. They just took care of the poor. And and every historian of the day, we read the one quote where the guy says, man, if we would take care of our poor, we'd probably shut the Christians down. Everybody knows where to go to get food. They go to the Christians. One of Paul's missionary journeys, one of the ones where he wrote a lot of his letters, we're going to find out in the book of Acts, that was was a, a fundraising trip. There was a famine in Israel, and the widows in Israel were starving. And Paul leaves to go raise money from all the churches he had planted to do good. When he parts from the when he parts from the other apostles, they said, "Okay, we'll stay with the Jews. You go to the Gentiles. The only thing we we ask is remember the poor." And Paul says, "Which we were absolutely going to do anyway." Like this was core. We find the very first like the very first positions they hired people for. The very first like. I guess, church employees, if you want to say that, were deacons. And it was because they had gotten so many people, so many poor had gathered, that the apostles could no longer give themselves fully to the belief system, where they study and preach and pray, and to making sure everybody got fed. And so they had to hire help. They hired six guys just to feed tables because they weren't willing to let that suffer. So we see all through the book of Acts this kind of social movement going forth. Which leaves us with a new question. Why? Why did the church do this? Like what, what inspired them? There was nothing in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus that would have just automatically, you know, he didn't necessarily lay this out in his teaching. Like here's what, a, here's what the church will look like when it happens. Like he had a lot of uh, good parables and morals and, and teachings about the type of people that would do this. But he doesn't lay out like an economic system of communalism. So what was it that inspired them? And, and that's what we're going to get into first. And here's the thing we've got to keep track of. Is this is not a command. We can never take this kind of giving as a command. In fact, when you make it a command, it gets creepy. Like when you force people to share, it gets really creepy and bad things happen. In fact, in the, in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue, let's go ahead to the next slide. He says things like, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. What's implied in that? There's something implied in those commands. It's not stated, but it's, it's implied under there. A principle, a deep principle that's, that's implied here. Can anybody find it? What's that? Well, yeah, but there's a, there's a deeper principle implied in in these commands to not do. What is it? What? Huh? No, it's even deeper than that. Ownership. Like deep underneath these commands an implied ownership. You can't steal something if we all share everything. Like in do not steal is implied that someone else owns that thing. That's someone else's wife. That's someone else's stuff that you're not supposed to covet. That's someone else's life you're not supposed to take the Ten Commandments have an implied ownership built into them so the Bible doesn't command us to share everything we have the Bible gives us a form of ownership like it, it implies an ownership you can't take people's stuff because it's their stuff and God seems to support this, so we have, this is the, and this is what makes this move by the early church so dynamic is it's not a command this is not something that they were told or forced to do this was their stuff, and the Bible supports that this is their stuff. This is the, this is like a free will explosion of generosity that's coming from the church, and there is a reason why. Um, in the time of Jesus, as I was studying, I found this, which is which is kind of fascinating. About fifty years before Jesus, there was a false Messiah. In fact, the Sanhedrin that the same Sanhedrin that uh, first uh tried Jesus and sent him on to Herod. Actually that in that Sanhedrin's term, I don't know what you would call it, but in, in that Sanhedrin's lifetime, um they uh investigated and basically shot down twelve different Messiahs. That was one of the jobs of the Sanhedrin was when a Messiah would show up, they would show him. This is why they show up to John the Baptist in the Jordan. When he's baptizing and it says in the and the leader show up and he's like, What are you doing here, you brood of vipers? That wasn't just a random, let's go see what's going on in the Jordan. They were there on official business to see if this was a Messiah. to see Because people were gathering, and that's what the Sanhedrin did. And so John says, I'm not the one you're looking for. Like He just says right out, I'm not claiming to be a Messiah, I'm not a Messiah. But the Sanhedrin, there was 12 different Messiahs that showed up in that Sanhedrin's lifetime. And one of them, about five, 50 years before Jesus... Um, we we actually some historians refer to him but we get his full story from some of the scrolls found in the dead sea scrolls he went by the name the um, uh the what was it teacher of righteousness is what he was called the teacher of righteousness and his following was called the covenant community and they were uh heavily into the old testament obviously that's they were it was a jewish sect and they um they communed that in in their understanding of what the Old Testament called for, they shared everything in common. And it actually, in this Dead Sea Scroll, it actually had, when you first joined, you gave your stuff on like a temporary basis and then once you decided you were all in, you signed it over to the church. And the Sanhedrin came, they tried this guy and they actually killed him. This happened before Rome had taken away the Sanhedrin's um, right to capital punishment. So they actually stoned the teacher of righteousness to death. But something... In the time of Jesus, something inspired the people toward this kind of living. Something they saw in the Old Testament drew them toward this kind of communalism. And we're going to talk about some of that. Now, as I studied this, i got to tell you, these were deep waters. Like, there was a time this week when I almost texted Bill like a nasty text. Like, how did you leave me with this one? Because I had books open everywhere and it was... So I'm gonna have to hop around a little bit and do a little more proof texting than I'd like to do because this was, this was really too big to get, this was like a whole semester class we could have teaching. This, there's a lot of stuff here. But, we're gonna start with this because we know that Israel was called to be separate. They were called to be holy. I will be your God and you will be my people. There was this set apart nature to Israel. Okay? And And we're familiar with this. We got verses, go ahead to the next passage. There we go. We've got verses like this one, which we're all used to. It says, And I'll set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Philistia and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You you shall drive them out before you. You will make no covenant with them nor their gods. They shall not dwell in the land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve your gods, it will surely be a snare unto you. From Exodus twenty three, and this sounds very exclusive, very like almost almost like and, and and Israel by like takes it as exclusive because they almost turned it into almost a racism, like us and them. You got Israel and and we can just call all of you Gentiles because you're just not Israel, like and they that, and it was that clean to them. That's the way they took it, but then we have to hold that in balance with this next passage. Go ahead where it says and if a stranger dwells with you in your land you shall not mistreat him the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you and you shall love him as yourself for you were a stranger in the land of Egypt i am the lord your god so we've got these this kind of exclusive language we're going to drive them out of the land before you and you're not going to you know and and you won't even know them and then When one of them comes into your land, treat them like one of yours. Love them. Like, because you are a stranger. And we have trouble balancing these. But if we go back to the first one, go ahead and go to the next slide. If we go back to the first one, we notice these parts down here. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, surely it will be a snare unto you. And this leaves us with another question. Why was God so afraid of their gods? Like there are passages in the Old Testament where God makes fun of their gods, where he's like, there's one of my favorites is, is one of the prophets says, let me, and there's, it's just dripping with sarcasm because the prophet's like, let me get this straight. You cut down a tree, you use part of the wood to build your house, part of the wood to heat your house, part of the wood to put in your cook stove to cook your meal. You make a chair with another part, and then the other part you carve a god. You put it up, and then you bow to that god and thank you for giving you everything. Like, and the and it's like he's like, are you even paying any attention to this? Like, you made that god the same way you made your chair, but then you worship that god. Like, and he and the prophet's almost making fun of of this idolatry. And if these are false gods, if these are made up gods, why is God so afraid of them? And that's, that's the question that we have to wrestle with here. And, and believe it or not, this is all going to come back around. You guys remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Ugarit? Anybody remember Ugarit? Ugarit was that, um, Hittite city that they found buried under the ground. And when they uncovered it, it had three libraries in it with like the biggest reservoir of ancient texts that they've ever found. Three different libraries full of texts that spanned from about the time That Moses was leading the Israelites a little bit before that actually, the time that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt all the way up to the time of the end of the Judges. And it had writings from all throughout that time. It's our greatest resource for what the Canaanite civilization looked like. What that world looked like when Israel came into it. And from Ugarit we find out what their worship systems were like. We find out what their gods did what their kind of what their faith system created. And and we get a lot from Egypt as well, from ancient Egypt we see it there. And there are some principles that show up in all of these faith systems that were alive at the time of the birth of Israel. Let's go to the next slide. And here's what we find. All the gods of Canaan supported the ruling class. They always supported the ruling class. They oppressed the lower classes. And they always reinforced the king, that the king was always the, the end-all and be-all. And their religious systems, their belief systems reinforced this, this, this belief. And then comes Israel. And what do we find out in Israel? Number one, there was no ruling class. You guys remember when, when the people wanted a king, they cried out for a king? And, and Samuel was upset and God said, okay, give him a king. Um, go ahead and give them a king if, if that's what they want and then what's he say he says but I want you to warn them and what he warns them with isn't um, isn't like like when we hear God complaining about the other gods he, he almost sounds like a petulant child like God's like I don't want you to worship any other gods but me like and, and we read it like it's this like he's this like child but if you read the warning he gave them if you ask for a king let me tell you what's going to happen he's going to take your sons and he's going to put them in his army. He's going to take your daughters, he's going to put them in his in his harem. He's going to tax you and take your stuff. He's basically he says what's going to happen if you take a king, you're going to be oppressed. That king is going to and he doesn't warn them there's nothing religious in his warning. He doesn't say I'm going to pull away from you and I'm going to I'm going to abandon you if you decide to have a king instead of me. What he says is if you if you allow a ruling class in this moment, you're going to be oppressed. That's what God's trying to protect him from by having no king. But by by having God as his king, there is no ruling class to oppress. You guys understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? In the early Israel, there was no ruling class. It had protections for the lower classes. That didn't exist anywhere in ancient religion. There were no protections for for the lower classes. And it supported justice. In fact, chapter 23, the chapter we just read a minute ago about we're going to push them out before you. We're going to, we're going to push the, the, they won't be able to stand before you. Here's how that chapter begins. Let's go to the next slide. It says, you shall not, this is chapter 23 of Exodus, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to do unrighteous, to be an unrighteous witness. Nor should you follow the crowd to do evil. Nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside or pervert justice you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute if you meet an enemy whose ox or donkey is going astray you shall surely bring it back to him and if you see a donkey of someone who hates you lying or falling under its burden and you would refrain from helping it help him you shall surely help him do not pervert the justice of the poor in the street. so he says don't pervert justice for the poor and don't pervert justice to hurt the poor Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous. For I I will not justify the wicked. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. You shall also not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers. What God is looking for is is justice, like a, a society where things are fair, where everyone has their needs met. And there's no lack. This is what Israel was supposed to be. We have a tendency to look at God's kind of exclusive exclusivity and we make it about like morality, like the moral issues. You know, and we paint these pictures like Sodom and Gomorrah is a great one. Sodom and Gomorrah, like we have, we've created words to match the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have this one terrible story about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and and just total debauchery. And we think that's what it was about. But in Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us what Sodom and Gomorrah's real sin was. Ezekiel tells it and he's actually yelling at Israel because they had, they had gotten into injustice. They were oppressing their poor. And here's what... Go to the next verse. The next slide. Here's what Ezekiel says about Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, this was the iniquity or the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, and neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Is that what you think of when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah? Is that the metaphor we've created? Is that the image? They didn't take care of the needy and the poor. No. We make it about these this this kind of moral behavior, and of course that has an impact, and that's important, but it's also about this environment God was trying to create in Israel look at these next couple verses put up the next slide for the poor will never cease from the land you guys heard that verse when Jesus says this he says there will always be poor among you we we use that as an excuse to to not do anything right because there's always going to be poor among you like what can you do like this is how the Old Testament says it for the poor will never cease out of the land therefore I command you saying you shall open your hand wide to your brother to the poor and to the needy in your land there will always be poor among you that's why you give And the Levite, because he had no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who were in your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied. This was the tithe. This is what they did with the tithe. It went into the storehouse, and these were the people that ate off of it. The Levites, the, the widows, the fatherless, the orphans, the strangers. And then the last one, the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, the field will be returned to the person from whom you bought it the one who originally owned the land as a possession. So every 50 years, the land, you've, and you bought and sold, normal economy happened, then every 50 years, it went back to the original family. Because 50 years was long enough to fail. A person could make bad investments, they could be a bad farmer, they could be lazy, anything could happen, they could fail and become poor. But it, it made it to where that didn't guarantee their kids and their kids' kids were going to be poor. Because eventually, in an agrarian society, if you're given a chunk of land and a fresh start, you can make something so it, it allowed people to make bad decisions and become poor but it didn't guarantee that their line was going to stay poor just because they were starting out behind now here's the thing no we, we can find no religions anywhere of the day that had anything like this nothing they had the opposite Judaism was was unique in that it had stuff like this protections for the poor commands to help the poor like built-in parts of the economy. And, and from history, from what we find in history, is, is, is Israel never really did embrace Jubilee. But can you imagine? Now here's, you know, we, we see constantly in the book of Judges where they would cry out for a deliverer and they would get set free and then they would go back to worshipping the other gods again. And, we, and when we read it, and then they would be getting beat up again and they would cry out and he would send a deliverer and they would be set free and then they'd go back to worshipping the other gods again. And we're always like, why? Like we see these patterns and we don't understand it. But can you imagine three years before a Jubilee year? How tempting it would be to have served that other God for a while? Because if I stay with Jehovah, I've got to give back all this stuff. But if I start worshiping Baal over here, He tells me I can hang on to everything. You see how the worship of these gods would change? the way you looked at this stuff and they would give you permissions to do things that God didn't want you to do. And so when you've, got, when you've got a God who's telling you you need to care for the poor, you need to take care of the needy, you need to tithe and give so that, and, and you, need to, you need to leave part of your field unharvested so the poor can come through and glean and, and gather the stuff on the edges and they can eat. There's times it would be a whole lot easier to worship another God who's not going to make you do that. Who encourages you to be rich and stay richer and get more and not take care of anybody. This language is absolutely revolutionary at the time. It's completely cutting edge. We don't have anything else like it. I don't think God was afraid of other gods. Like this angry, jealous God like I want all your worship I think he knew that these other gods had a power structure attached to them, when you worship them you buy into the whole idea and that idea usually means injustice, it usually means oppressing the poor, it usually means reinforcing what you want and so when God's warning Israel to stay separate Stay apart. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Well, he's calling them to be holy, which means set apart, different. That's what he's wanting for them. He doesn't want them to buy into these, these power systems that are tied in, because in the ancient world, your religion was your power system. Like your, your belief system was, was the whole ruling power class. And when you bought into that, you bought into the whole system. This is the vision. These, this is the this is this is the vision that the early church is tying into. What they're what they're seeing. They're seeing this early Israel, and from all accounts, Israel never did really buy into that. And when and if you read through the prophets, when God was finally fed up with Israel, guest preacher tonight. How are you, Aviva? High five. You looking for dad? Oh, there he is. Yep. Yep, there's mama. This is... Hey, I got a secret. They're staying awake for you way better than they are for me. This is what the early church is tapping into. Go ahead and go to the next slide. We talked a little bit ago about Rome when it took over. It was only about a hundred years before this that Rome took over uh, Israel, and they taxed them heavily. Rome Rome taxed all their all the lands they conquered. They taxed them heavily. There was a lot of poverty in Israel at the time. There was a lot of uh, of really complete starvation. And the Sanhedrin was the aristocratic class. They were the Sadducees. These were the guys that, that kind of joined the Hellenistic forces. Like they were all for the Roman influences and the Greek influences into Israel. And this is who's running the Sanhedrin. This is who runs the temple now. And so you've got this class of people who they're dealing with a heavily taxed poor people And they have access, they control the access to God. And they had a temple tax we know about. Just to come into the temple, you paid a tax to the Sanhedrin. They had all the offerings and sacrifices and tithes came to them. And if you didn't bring them, they could bar you from the presence of God. They could bar you from access to God. This is why Jesus is so spitting mad when he goes in and flips the temple. He's not mad that, you know somebody was selling things. He just, he saw this power structure. Like you guys are literally taking access to God and using it to co opt power, using it to take what resources there are, transfer them to you so that you can hold, keep yourself in power. It was the whole system was built to hold them in power. Now along comes a church and a church that says, and these guys start preaching that you now have peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And not only that, but you, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pay a temple tax. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no more temple tax. And Jesus' death was once and for all. You don't have to keep making sacrifices and offerings for sin. Can you see how this would subvert the power structure of the day? Can you see why this made the Sanhedrin uncomfortable? We now have 8,000 people, actually 8,000 men, so probably ten to 12,000 people who no longer need the temple who no, in the same way they did. They don't have to pay a temple tax. They don't have to pay sacrifices and offerings. And, and so, yeah, when they hear the apostles preaching, they call them in. We're going to have a trial because this is scary stuff. This is starting to threaten the gods of the day. So when the church starts to, and then we've got the alms the temple was the only place to go to get alms and so they held that over the people said too they kind of they kind of misered out the alms to keep people basically at their doorstep and so the church starts to take that over and what's beautiful is they're subverting the power structure they're conquering the gods of the land with love they're not even going head to head with anybody they're just they're just sharing and loving and having grace and community and it's threatening the powers that be and subverting them. And what I one of the things I love about this is go to the next slide is this was the church's move. It didn't say that that God that everybody's needs were met because God was just... Showering down blessings. This is everybody's needs were met because the church was responding. Because the church did things. No one suffered, none none among them suffered lack because of what the church did. So, how do we respond to this? First, I have to say this this is not about salvation. This has nothing to do with salvation. Going to the next slide. This is this. Jesus took care of salvation. It's what that's about what he did not what we do. That this has nothing to do with making God happy, with earning favor from God, with doing anything to please God. This is the question of what what does the church want to be? This is the question of what kind of people do we want to be? What kind of people do we want to create? And one of the problems we have is we like to replicate things. We see something and and we well that's exactly the way they did it, so that's exactly what we have to do. You know, and so we, we come away from this and are we supposed to commune? Like is that is that what the church is called to do? Are we called to share absolutely everything? Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. And I think it's important not to get caught up in the logistics of this. Because in the in the in the birth of Israel, when God was laying out this kind of a this kind of an economy what the early church did wouldn't have worked because a lot of what God was setting up was agrarian. They had gleaning, they had, you know, you can't, if you're feeding the poor off the edges of your field, selling your field to give to the poor doesn't really help. So, the logistics that worked for the early church wouldn't have worked for early Israel. And I think the logistics that worked for early Israel and worked for the early church won't necessarily work for us. So I'm not, I'm not pushing a particular economy here by any means. We live in a completely different world. But we do have to focus on the root this passage starts with they were all in one accord. They have one heart and one soul and one mind. And this is something the church has, has struggled with forever. Because we like to fight about stuff. Man, do we like to fight about stuff. And we're going to disagree. Like We're going to see things different. We're going to... You know, that's going to happen. That has nothing to do with having one mind and one soul. Like understanding that I mean, I used to love the way Bonhoeffer put it. Bonhoeffer, who was a, he was a pacifist, but he was a pacifist who was also willing to volunteer to carry the bomb in, this briefcase to blow up Hitler if, they would, if he could get close enough. Like, but he was a pacifist because he said, I feel like a German Christian and an, a British Christian have more in common than a German Christian and a German non-Christian And an English Christian and an English non Christian. Like, even if we don't speak the same language and we don't, and we come from two totally different cultures, if we're both Christians, we have more in common than my next door neighbor if he's not a Christian. One heart and one mind. That, that unity, that understanding of, of this is more important than the things we fight over, than the little disagreements we have, than the, and all the stuff, then, then the gods of the land. that's what it comes down to. And I'll, I mean I'll, I'll name the American gods. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Individualism, money, power and sex. Those are the names of the gods that we're competing against. And like Israel, we're not supposed to make alliances with these gods. We're not supposed to give our allegiance to these gods. We're not supposed to serve these other gods. So how do we do this? Go ahead. With the church. When I say on Sundays that God breathes us into his sacred presence, like, well, what we hope to create is, is a space that's different, that's free from that. A space that we get breathed into that where we don't worship those gods. Where we're safe from, from those gods. I mean, and that's why it's a small thing. Some, some of them are small things. That's why we follow the church calendar. And I know it's a tiny little thing, but that's why on Mother's Day we don't preach a Mother's Day sermon. On Father's Day we don't preach a Father's Day sermon. It's because we have our calendar. We're trying to, in this, in this sacred time, when we're together our common life together we want to follow a different calendar and we want to follow a different liturgy and we want to we don't want to chase the those things so my hope is that you'll pray with me that we'll stand against these gods that this church will never be about a person whether that's you or me or anybody that we won't serve the god of individualism and we come in feeling like the needs of the other is more important me when I come in here expecting to carry someone else's burdens when I come in here and yeah I come in authentic and if I'm hurting I bring my hurts and someone's going to help me pick them up but I also come in expecting to carry burdens I come in expecting to help someone else and when we do that we break one of the altars this will never be a place that's about power we're not going to take up a political banner and storm Washington like that's where our power comes from. And hopefully we don't get into little little tiny politics within our church where we're struggling to see our agenda advanced. That's not what this is about. We don't want to serve that God. That's one of the gods of the land. And I hope, I hope we're never about money. I hope we never get into the game of chasing the bigger, fancier, shinier, newer, you know, and, and having to leverage everything we have to, you know, to keep up with the, the new shiny, fancy thing. That's not our God. And I hope we can keep away from the God of sex, honestly. I hope we can create an atmosphere where women can come and be themselves and not feel objectified. Like sometimes the, the, the way the church treats modesty... I think it almost makes women feel more objectified than when we don't talk about it. Like when we're like, cover those up, God. And she's like, mm-hmm. like, like, I think sometimes we objectify more. In, 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 I just hope we can get away from that. I hope women can come and not feel like an object. I hope men can come and feel safe from the, the overstimulated culture we live in we don't worship that God we don't make it about that God so my prayer tonight my prayer that I invite you to pray with me is that whatever we do the space we create it's it's probably not going to look like it did in early Israel it's probably not going to look like it did in the early church there would be a space where we refuse to buy into the gods of the land that we, we declare this space this one mind this one soul this one kind of corporate communal space would stand against that it would be a bastion separate holy that's what holy means to be set apart to be different It doesn't mean don't drink, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. It means that we're different, that we are just different. That we follow a different system. Different gods. That we stand apart from those things. That we would serve a God that, that His big power move His big declaration was a broken body and poured out blood. That's the kind of God we serve. That's his big power move. Was sacrifice. Was giving himself.